0: But now we're going to get back to finishing off the first chapter of 1 Peter. And if you've been with Grace for a little while, especially over the summer as we were looking at the book of Numbers, uh, seeing only three verses in the bulletin or on the screen might be surprising to you, shocking, Uh, particularly as we were going through Numbers, we were looking at 30 verses. So you might be wondering how important could these three verses be? Well, very important, I tell you. Last week, we saw Peter's first command to the people that he's writing to, be holy. This week, in these three verses, we get his second command. And I think you can pick it out, but even so, let's listen very closely to the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us this morning. God, we gather together around your word, these words of life that you spoke to us through your servant, Peter, and we acknowledge that it can be hard for us to hear you speaking because this was written long ago, because of the busyness of our lives, because of how hard it can be to engage for a little bit of time. And so we ask that you'd send your spirit to us. Help us to hear the words of life this morning from your word, the Bible. Pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain, and I pray this in the mighty name of your son Jesus. Amen. Uh, Something came out of my mouth the other day that I wasn't entirely proud of. I swore to myself that I would never say it, and to make matters worse, my kids were there for it. Let me tell you what happened. Both of our girls each have a chore chart Uh, Some chores are daily chores, some are once-a-week chores, and in order to get any TV or iPad time before they go outside and play, they need to accomplish the chores on their chore chart and check them off. And we were going back over these chores again, reminding them, hey, this is what you got to do, and one of our daughters started to protest. Why do I have to do that? Well, someone in the house has to accomplish this task. It benefits all of us, and it's one that we thought you could handle. But why doesn't Sissy have to do that? Well, she has stuff on her chore chart that you don't have on yours. You have some that she doesn't have on hers. But why do I have to do it? Because this is the rules. We're all helping out with the house. This is just part of how things run. But why do I have to do it? This is where it came out. Before I could stop it, because I said so, I sound just like my parents. I'm sure you've been there. Sadly, it was probably earlier in your life than you expected it to be as well. No matter how hard we try to keep it out, some of our family characteristics and mottos stick with us. It's not always bad. It's not always embarrassing, though, is it? Some of the good qualities stick with us as well. Peter here uses the language of being born again. Maybe you've heard that connected with the idea of salvation, coming to Jesus, having faith, professing your faith, is being born again. He uses that phrase here. And with any birth comes family. When you're first born, you are born into a family. First birth, first family. New birth, new family. This little section here is all about the difference between the old family, the one that is perishable, and the new family, the one that Peter says is imperishable. And it's not just the difference between the families themselves, but also how members of each family behave. Right? That's what we see at the very beginning in verse 22, which can be somewhat challenging for us to hear and understand as it is translated in English. Since you have already purified yourself by obedience to brotherly love, then go ahead and love others. If I've done it, how am I supposed to do it again? What are you asking me to do? Right, since uh, he is writing to a group of believers, Peter uh, says, as members of the imperishable family, I'm going to remind you of something and charge you with something. Both things are there in that passage, who they are and what they should do based on who they are. You have obeyed the truth of brotherly love, so love others still a little confusing? I can simplify it for us, I think. You've probably heard the popular counseling saying, hurt people hurt people, right? If you're being antagonized or wounded by someone, chances are there's some wound in their own life, in their heart, that they're acting and behaving out of. It's like that, but different. Loved people love people. That's how I think we can simplify this passage. Loved people love people. Two points for us this morning. The first, loved people. You've probably seen those bumper stickers around town that says, "We're a Niners family," or maybe "We're a Giants family." You probably haven't seen the super rare, "We're an A's family." <laughs> maybe uh, you've heard or said, "We're a musical family," or "We're a hiking family." Right? Sometimes this, this characteristic of our family, this habit that we have, can actually come to define who we are as a family. It can, come become part of the moniker of how we're known. But I want you to think about this. No one day old actually cheers for the Niners. You know? No child is born hiking. That doesn't—well, somebody might be born on a hike, but they're not ready to hike when they're born, Right? It's something that is passed along from one generation to the next, passed from the parent on to the children. God's family, Peter says, is marked by love because God Himself is love. That's Peter's point about the imperishable family. Peter is talking in verse 22 about salvation. He says, Purification by obedience. That is talking about faith in Jesus. Believing the gospel. Purification by obedience to the truth is all about your family, being brought into God's family. This is the reminder part of Peter's message. The reminder is if you have faith in Jesus, you are brought into the family, and that family is marked by love. Believing the truth of a sincere and brotherly love, God's family is about love because God is love. And not just like the idea of love, the flowery Valentine's uh, greeting card idea of love, but because God has always existed as a trinity, three persons in one, God is also the active part of love. He is love, actually, right? True, self-giving love is how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always related to one another. And in this case, Peter pulls out the characteristic of brotherly love. Now, this isn't unique to Peter. He's not creating something on his own. This is what we see throughout Scripture. In fact, the apostle John writes something incredibly similar in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. God's love brings you into his family, which is marked by love. Now, college football is back, so I feel entitled to have at least one college football illustration. Nick Saban is probably, arguably, the greatest college football coach of all time. Currently, he coaches the University of Alabama. I'm aware they lost yesterday, but just go with the illustration. He's won multiple championships there. He also won national championships at Louisiana State University where he coached previously. He is a hard-nosed coach. If you've ever seen any of the -the behind-the-scenes work that he does during practice, he yells a lot. He is very strict, but every top-level athlete wants to go play for Nick Saban. And in a documentary I watched about him and his coaching life, somebody asked his wife, what do you think drives him to be the best coach? What is it that drives him to be so tough, such a good leader, to demand so much out of these players and to get these kids to perform so well? And she offered a few experiences that he had had along the way. But then she said, when you boil it down, underneath it all, he's just trying to prove himself to Big Nick, his dad. This 70-year-old man is living his entire life trying to prove himself to his father, to prove that he is worthy of love. You might not coach a a college football team ever, but each one of us is trying to prove ourselves to other people. Maybe it's not your father, but it's someone. We want to prove that we are worthy of being loved, to prove and try to earn the love of other people, maybe because you've never been told that you're loved, or maybe because you've been told and you don't believe it. We try to prove that we are worthy of love. We try to earn it. I don't know what your father said or didn't say to you, I don't know what your Father did or didn't do to or for you, but the whole Bible, and this passage in particular, says that God the Father loves you. God loves you. And if you need actions to back up those words, look no further and take a long look at the cross. Because it's there that God the Father declares I love you so much, I have given my only son in exchange for you. It's there that God himself says, I willingly suffered, supremely suffered and died to bring you into my family. This self-giving brotherly love that the father has for the son, that the son has for the spirit, that the spirit has for the father and son, that they've always shared with each other, you are brought into that. That love is yours through the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you are loved by the God of the universe. God's family, his people, are a loved people. And loved people love people. Second point, loved people love people. Peter is unique in the way that he writes his letters. His Greek is very unique. He blends the indicative with the imperative. Or another way to say it is the truth with the charge. He makes it a trudge. Paul, for example, is different. Paul usually writes truth, truth, truth. You are loved. This is who you are because of what God has done for you. This is what kind of family you're brought into. This is true. And then he writes, charge, charge, charge. So go love, go serve, go proclaim, whatever it might be. Peter, on the other hand, puts truth and charge together. You're part of the family marked by love, so love. It's who you are, so do it. Go love. That's his charge. That's his second command. And it's not a command that we would ever bristle at. In fact, the world around us tells us, yeah, you should go love other people. Go do it. But the world also says, you get to define what that love looks like. My heart rejoices in that. I'm happy to go love someone as long as I get to decide what that love looks like. And that leads to things like, it may not seem loving to you, but I'm actually loving the person by not giving any money to the the person begging on the street corner. It does. I know you don't get it, but it, it is loving. It's loving. It's actually loving of me to tell you what all of these people are talking about you behind your back. I know it doesn't feel like it, but I, I'm loving you. I'm loving you in that. I'm loving you when, when I don't tell you how I feel because I know it's going to make you sad, so it's loving. I'm loving you. As long as I get to define what the love is, I'm happy to love. That's what it is according to our world. Also, I get to define how long I'm going to love you. I'm happy to love you as long as it doesn't get in the way of me loving myself. As long as it's not too costly for me. And as long as you thank me, I'm happy to love you, right? That's like saying we're a Niners family unless they lose in the playoffs and then we're a Chiefs family. You're not actually a Niners family. You just love to be on the winning side. Right? If you define what love looks like and you get to define how long that love lasts, are you really loving? Are you really loving? Peter would say, no, that's not actually love. Your love should be shaped not by how you think or how you feel, but according to God's love for you, right? Just as the parents behave, the kids behave, God's love towards you is what shapes the love of his children. Our love is to be defined and shaped by God's love for us. And thankfully, we have lots of different passages of Scripture that talk to us about what love should be. Perhaps you've heard some of them if you've attended a wedding recently. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes this, "'Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude.'" it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I'm sure you've heard that before. Paul's explanation of a, a godly love fits perfectly, actually, into Peter's truth charge, truge, idea here. This list that that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, this is exactly what God's love for you looks like. The truth. This is how God has loved you. And the charge. This is what your love for others should look like. The whole list. Now, that can get repeated so often at weddings and perhaps in movies and things that it falls a little bit on deaf ears. I understand these things, but like, what is that actually? You know, like, I'm trying my best. That's the best we can ask for. Another way that the Bible talks about a God-love, shaped love is through this idea of one anothering. We see it over and over in Scripture. The apostles call the early church to love one another in different ways. Accept one another, instruct one another, agree with one another, serve one another. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate, speak to one another kindly, submit to one another, bear with one another, bear one another's burdens, encourage and build up one another. Over and over and over again, these commands to one another fill the apostle's writing. And if you want to see what that actually looks like lived out, you want to see it at work, right? Some of us are visual, more practical learners. Hearing it is helpful, but seeing it on display is actually how we learn. I would encourage you to check out one of our community groups because this idea of one anothering is how we train our community group leaders to build the community of the community group. Now, those community groups aren't going to do it perfectly, but I can guarantee you will not see great one-anothering by just showing up to church for an hour and a half, and that's it. It's just not enough time. It's not enough time to see it in action. Check out a community group. See a godly-shaped one-anothering at work. Now, you might already get this. Okay, my love often is dictated by myself, Stephen. I see that. But how do I change my love to sh- be shaped more like God's love? How, how do I let it be shaped by the love that God has for me? Well, our first reaction is going to be try harder, love more, be more patient, one another more. Just do it, just be more like Jesus. Scott Sauls, who is a pastor in our denomination, wrote in one of his books if you want to be more like Jesus, be with Jesus more. Sit in the presence of God's love for you. Read about it. Talk to him about it. Pray. Sing about it. Right? The presence of love, true love in your life, is the powerful agent of change that we all need. Right, And, and this is what we all need because I can tell you, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't spend enough time with Jesus thinking about his love for me. And you know how I know? Because I know I don't love well. The way I love people is more defined by myself than by Jesus's love for me. I need to spend more time with Jesus's love for me, right? And as you spend time with him, as you sit with him, he fills you He fills you with his love, and the love of Jesus begins to flow out of you. Jesus himself begins to flow out of you, and change does too. Early in his life, Mahatma Gandhi experienced racial discrimination as an immigrant in South Africa, and at first, his natural response was the conventional way to fight injustice. Anger, aggression, loud, destructive, give me justice now. But he was changed when he met a Christian, a Quaker named Charles Andrews, and the two became friends. And Andrews began to show Gandhi unwavering love and compassion. It was Andrews's love for Gandhi and his commitment to nonviolence that deeply influenced how Gandhi began to respond to this injustice he was experiencing. And he realized that love, compassion, nonviolence, that was actually powerful to create change in the world. Now, somewhere, some Christian is going to say, ah, but Gandhi wasn't a Christian. The way he loved wasn't a God shaped love because he wasn't proclaiming Jesus. So maybe Andrews' love wasn't actually worth it. He could have spent it somewhere else, another way, on someone else who would have expanded the kingdom. Does his love really count? Well, I would say love does not insist on its own way. Love bears all things. I would also say, in a logical sense, a violent resistance movement led by Gandhi would have led to a significant loss of life. And so, yes, Andrews's love had a huge impact, but also it was Gandhi's movement of nonviolence and love, which had a huge impact on a young preacher from Atlanta named Martin Luther King Jr., He was a believer. He did proclaim the love of Jesus and the power that it had to change the world. There's no doubt that Charles Andrews knew that he was loved by God and that his love for Gandhi was what shaped Gandhi's movement. And it was Gandhi's movement in which Martin Luther King recognized a love that mirrored God's love. And the power that it has to change the world around us, starting with us. Loved people love people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you tell us over and over and over again, from the very first pages of your word till the very end, that you love us. And we thank you also that you have shown us your love for us through your Son through his incarnation, becoming like us, coming to us, his perfect obedience, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his victorious resurrection. I thank you that those actions not only show your love for us, but by receiving them as being for us, they fill us with your love I pray that you would remind us of your love for us so that it might change us to be more loving towards others in the way that you have loved us, going to people, meeting with people where they're at, loving them as you have loved us. We pray all of this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.